everyone, and welcome to Coach's Corner. I love today's conversation. It's about people pleasing and saying no. And I know a lot of you need to hear this conversation. And some of you may even think, I'm not a people pleaser. I can say no, but you might be wrong. Just just listen to the interview. Listen to what Natalie and I talk about, because there may be some covert ways you're people pleasing and not saying no, and you don't even realize it. I also want to let you all know, especially those of you who are coaches or aspiring coaches, so either coaches that really want to take your business and your life to the next level, or anyone who's ever thought about being a coach and think it's a career you want to transition into, or at least have those skills and training and certification under your belt. The Coaching Institute I co-founded with my husband and our colleagues, Alexi Panos and Preston Smiles, is open for enrollment and our early bird pricing where you save $2,500, yes, that's $2,500 dollars ends May 15th. So I would encourage you get your application in. It's a seven month program. It starts in September. It is one of the most, if not the most, I haven't researched every single coaching training program, but what I have researched, man, we are so comprehensive and there's so much student attention you get. We have faculty, we have ways that we help you be a better coach, not just in your skills and techniques, but in building your business. There's so much heart in this. Every class that we've had so far, well, there's been two, they have become a family. They've become cheerleaders for each other and their coaching businesses and their lives have just taken off. This is a transformational program. It's not just a certification program. So get your application in so you can take advantage of that early bird pricing and payment plans. Go to elementumcoachinginstitute.com, elementumcoachinginstitute.com. Elementum is spelled E-L-E-M-E-N-T-U-M, coachinginstitute.com. Fill out your application any questions you have from there, someone will be able to answer them for you. And I really hope to see you in next year's class. I'm so, so excited. Elementum is one of the few things I am doing right now. The podcast, my personal coaching, my women's retreat, and Elementum are getting all of my focus. There's not much else that I'm building or creating because I'm so passionate about training other coaches and taking all the wisdom and knowledge and experience that I've had over the past 20 years and and passing it on. So again, elementumcoachinginstitute.com. All right. Let me tell you about my guest today. I just love her. I'm so glad that I had an opportunity to have her on the show. Her name is Natalie Liu. She is a writer, speaker, podcaster, artist, and founder of one of the longest running self-help blogs in the world, Baggage Reclaim and the Baggage Reclaim Sessions podcast. Her new book, The Joy of Saying No, highlights her six-step plan to help readers find their no so they can create healthier boundaries and reconnect with their values and authentic self. And she gives so many tips in this interview. And I want to thank my sponsor for this episode, which is Organifi. You always get 20% off all of your Organifi products when you go to Organifi.com slash over it and use over it as the promo code. Today, I want to talk to you about their green product. So eating healthy and getting your nutrition shouldn't be a pain in the butt, time-consuming, and expensive. And organic veggies can get pretty expensive and not always that convenient to shop for, depending on where you live and what season it is, so on and so forth. So you can subscribe to Organifi and get their green powder delivered. And it costs only $1.98 per day to get like basically vegetables in a powder. And you can really, really trust Organifi's product. I love them. I love the way that they make things. I love their ethos and I love the way their products taste. 
Their green has a clinical dose of ashwagandha made with clinically studied KSM 66 ashwagandha to help reduce stress, promote relaxation, improve quality of life, support a healthy immune system, promote memory and concentration, control stress-related things, food cravings, support quality of sleep, support physical performance and endurance, and support sexual health. Hey, pretty good for $1.95 a day. <laughs> and if you don't want to subscribe, you can just go to Organifi.com slash over it and get 20% off any of your orders using the promo code over it. And now on to my interview with Natalie. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, there's so many things I'm excited to talk to you about. One of which is people pleasing and saying no, which are big, big topics for my audience and something that comes up a lot. But I want to go back in time a little bit and and talk about um, the blog that you started and what subsequently became your podcast, the baggage reclaim baggage. You can tell I'm from where I'm from the U.S. <laughs> 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 How would you say it? How do you pronounce B A G G A G E? Oh, we say ba- uh, baggage. Baggage. Yeah, that's the more oh, correct way to say it. Yeah. My parents are from Wisconsin. So sometimes my Midwestern baggage and bagel and stuff like that comes out. <laughs> uh, but tell me a little bit about the baggage reclaim, that blog, and subsequently the podcast. What had you come up with that title and what had you start that blog in the first place? So, like, I started blogging with a personal blog in June 2004 called um, (laughs) Tired of Men and Other Things That Drive a 20-something Around the Twist. And it was uh, a space where I was frustrated. I was expressing my frustration with myself. You know, I'd say I wanted to be with a, a nice guy, but I was always uninterested in those and chasing after some unavailable guy. And I used it to tell stories on there, but also it was a way of exploring what was going on in my life. And I always did it with a dose of humor. And something that I noticed as I was writing over that sort of first year of blogging, so this is like 2004 to 2005, was how people were hungry for that raw honesty about relationships. But also people kept saying to me, I love your take on relationships. I love the way that you see things. I love the way, you know, you explain that thing and broke it down. You know, how amazing would it be if you like had a site like totally about this? And it sort of planted the seed. And then I sort of experienced a bit of an epiphany in the summer of 2005 about my woeful dating habits. And when I talked about this out loud on my then personal blog, people were like, oh my God, you are you are me. I am you. You're talking about me. And this made me realize that there was something in this and that I needed to create that that space to to talk about this, because the advice back then, sort of in the early 2000s and definitely in the 90s and before was very much about 50 ways to please your man and put on Mm -hmm. sexy lingerie. And I wanted to be the antidote to that. And so I played around with a variety of names and then I loved just this idea of, you know, we all have this emotional baggage and we need to reclaim ourselves from it. And it was, it had, it kind of had so many different meanings, you know, like, you know, the baggage, well, in America, you call it baggage claim here, we call it baggage reclaim, but it's like, actually, you only want to take the stuff that actually belongs to you. 
not everybody else's stuff. And so that's how I, I started with baggage retailing. And honestly, that was in September 2005. So it's almost 18 years old. And not for a moment did I think that I would still have it all these years later. Mm-hmm. Are you still actively writing on it now? So I have I haven't posted on the blog for a few months because I had this realization around about the time actually that the book came out. So, you know, my book, The Joy of Saying No, there's such a thing as needing to ask the question of how much is enough. Mm-hmm. I've written, I don't know, 16, 1700 blog posts, wow. I think, on there. And then there's the podcast and there's all the bits behind the scenes. Yeah. And so I realized, like, I could just let, let this thing be. Like, it gets so many visitors each month anyway. And that I needed to figure out you know, how I could let this thing become the adult that it is, because it's literally going to be 18 years old in a few months time. And so, I mean, I still get a lot of visitors each month. People are still reading the content. I've I've taken a break really from posting on there because it's like, I need to have a sense of what else I can do and what is next. Um, The funny thing is, is I still hear from people every day who are reading it and they're like, oh, I'm, I'm reading this thing. And it'll be something from like 10 years ago. So it just goes to show how the content lives on and on. Mm, it really, it really does. Which is, it's so amazing too how our personal <sighs> struggles, for lack of a better word, are what's most relatable. You know, it's great to be an expert on something, <laughs> but often we're experts because of what we went through. And I know now a little bit from Instagram stalking you that you're, you're, you got out of that emotional unavailability man cycle and eventually met someone and had children with them. How did you break out of that? attracting the emotionally unavailable man and actually settling into something that was healthier. I I, I want to acknowledge how true that was, what you said about mm. how the experiences that we go through, those struggles as such are the things that often put us in the position of creating this work in yes. the first place. Like if I didn't have, you know, the pretty torrid experiences that I had in childhood, you know, a turbulent upbringing, so the chaotic relationships with caregivers, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to write baggage reclaim. It would not mm. be the same thing. I would not have had the insight, the wisdom. You get these unintended skills and gifts yeah. as a result of some of these traumas that you go through, whether that is in, in childhood or in adulthood. I think a big thing for me in breaking the cycle of emotional unavailability was reconnecting with myself. And that came from, I'd had a variety of mystery ailments. And I look back and I realize it wasn't just something that happened in my early 20s, that I'd had it in in childhood as well. Clearly my body was in a lot of stress, but it all came to a head sort of in my late 20s when I had an immune system disease called sarcoidosis and it affected my sight and- Oh, that's a doozy one. That's a doozy. Wow. It affects everything everything. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of these, it's, they call it one of these mystery ailments because they don't know where it comes from or, and they say that there's no cure for it as such. And, and it can just take over your body. And so, you know, my sight, my eyesight diminished, my lung capacity diminished, my joints were hurting. I had, I had lumps riddled throughout my body. It just affected everything. And, at the same time as all of that was happening, it was like my my life was imploding. And I look back and I think that actually I 
was was very shut down emotionally. And I had been since childhood. It was my survival mechanism. And when you're shut down and you're making choices that are that are harmful to your well-being, it is going to show up in your body and in your life. And when I was faced with this, uh, this sort of damning prognosis, which, you know, you do tend to get when sarcoidosis is pretty bad. They were saying, look, you have to go on steroids for life if you don't want to be dead by the, by the age of 40. I was like, whoa, whoa, because my entire life had revolved around being all things to all people and performing and delivering and putting in efforts and to an extent, yes, suffering really f- for the love, you know, trying to get the love and like of others. And that was a big wake up call for me. And when I started to, I guess, looking back, started to do healing work on myself, which was going to see a kinesiologist uh, who then was talking to me about things like boundaries and saying, you know, talking about how emotionally shut down I was. It was like I had, I had essentially plugged myself back into the socket and allowed my body to start coming alive and to start mm. feeling my feelings and to take care of my body. And once you start doing these things, you you can't be emotionally unavailable mm-hmm. anymore. Once you start to know and take care of yourself and to be aware of how you feel and what's going on around you, and you actually direct yourself away from harmful choices, and you learn from those instances where you stumble into things, where you make mistakes, because of course we're only human, this allows you to become emotionally available. I started to have an intimate relationship with myself and Mm. that meant learning to say no. That is how I became emotionally available because when you are saying yes all the time or you're trying to be all things to all people and you're essentially hurting yourself for what seems to be the benefit of others, it is impossible to be emotionally available. When you allow yourself to say no when you need one to and should, then there's that's an intimate relationship because you're allowing yourself to say no, but you're also allowing others to say no as well. If you never say no, then you just don't have that intimacy. You don't have that honesty. You don't have that love, care, trust, and respect in your relationship. It's so true. It's it's so true. And one of the things that I talk about on this show, and thank you for sharing that, by the way, I we talk a lot about how unresolved emotional wounds and issues do result in physical ailments often. The Body Keeps the Score is a great book. There's many books about that. Yes. But there's our subconscious has to get through to us somehow. And alarm bells need to go off mm-hmm. some way to get our attention. Because I believe it is the IntelliKey of every soul to awaken and come back to love and clear a lot yes. of the childhood pain that we have. And that's just how the human species is evolving and how consciousness is evolving. And I think a lot of times we can feel victimized by health conditions or certain things that happen in our life. And we need to be sympathetic and empathetic with that part of us that feels like, whoa, this really sucks. And this was really hard and acknowledge that human part and also take responsibility for our healing. And it sounds like that's what you did. You really looked at how, how can I take response? I couldn't, I couldn't get out of my childhood but I can get out of what I'm in now and I can make those changes now. And that's such a great reminder for all of us is that in childhood, we didn't really have choices. We couldn't go to our parents Mm -hmm. and be like, you know what? You're an alcoholic or you're dysfunctional or you're just abusive. I'm going to pick new parents. I'm going to live in a new house. We couldn't do that when we were seven (laughs) or three or whatever. (laughs) Like we couldn't do that. And, or or if our parents were being abusive, we couldn't say no, stop. And they would just listen. We didn't have any of that kind of of freedom or, or choice or any, but as adults, we do, we do. But I think what's so hard is that 
we're so subconsciously triggered that we may be 40 years old, but we're responding as a seven-year-old. And that saying no can feel really, really terrifying. And I know so, I can think of so many of my listeners on the show and people I've coached on the show and they're, they're a grown up adult, rational, present day mind knows that they mm-hmm. should say no more often, knows that they should stop people pleasing, but it feels terrifying at the same time because in childhood, the only way they could get love was to people please. And saying no could mean mm-hmm. rejection. It could mean a whack across the face. It could mean no dinner for you. It could mean so many yeah. things. So you know, why, I I mean, I just answered a little bit of the question, but I'd love you to expand more on this to really help people who may be beating themselves up for being a people pleaser and for not being able to say no, and that they wish they were quote unquote Mm -hmm. stronger, why it is often so difficult and even terrifying to say no and to stop people pleasing. So I think it's important for us to acknowledge that we are socialized and conditioned to be people pleasers. Like, uh, if you're not a child right now, then you grew up in what I call the age of obedience, which was where the communicating, disciplining, interacting with children centered on making them as obedient, as compliant as possible, especially with authorities. And so there was this sense that you don't talk out of turn. You know, children should be seen and not heard. You want something to cry about? I'll give you something to cry about type of thing. And when you said no, or you expressed your feelings, or you've expressed your needs or your wants, it was seen as you being disobedient or selfish or spoiled or difficult or needy or too sensitive. There were so many things that you could be criticized for. And this this age of obedience went on for hundreds of years. We are socialized and conditioned to be people pleasers because it's what humans have figured out one is a way to feel safe, but also those who are benefiting from it have figured out that if you make out that you're an authority and you have this sense of threat, then people will comply with you. So people who have power over us get to have more power when we are people pleasers. So this is long, this has been going on for a long time. And when we think about how we are, like, you know, from when when we come into the world, we are filing away every experience that we, you know, that we go through. And that happens for the first several years of our life, uh, sort of unconsciously, it just, it just happens automatically. And then when we get to about six or seven, we start actively filing that stuff. So, you know, something happens, we don't like the look or feel of it. We then go, I'm not good enough. That was bad. And, and we file this away and our subconscious is like one big, massive filing system with billions of files. And what that means is that in the areas of that filing system that pertain to, for instance, saying no, being honest, having boundaries, expressing feelings, expressing needs, when your subconscious goes to pull files related to those subjects, it has painful emotions in there. And there are some Mm. conscious memories of things that we associate with that, but there's also a lot of buried stuff in there. And a lot of the time, like, what do they say? There's something like 90% of what's going on is in our subconscious and that something like a significant percentage of the thoughts that we have each day are the same as the ones that we had the day before, the week before, the month before. So there's a lot of stuff going on in there. And so what happens is that we're doing all of this stuff automatically. It is not a failure on our part, this is something that we learned as, as a way of surviving and coping. As children, we figure out 
what is how do I how do I play my role here in the family? We figure out what do I need to do in order to help out and to be good. And whatever we've learned within that environment to fit in around that is what becomes our people pleasing. And so, for instance, you might you may have grown up in an environment where you had, you know, parents who would kicking off, shouting, frightening things, you know, giving you a hard time. And maybe you have a sibling who would challenge that. And you saw those scary repercussions of what they went through. So you were like, Do you know what? I'm going to be good. I am not going to like ask for anything. I'm not going to make waves. I'm going to come home with really good grades. I'm going to stay quiet. And that became what you think is your personality and your character. And so here you are, and you might be in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and you've never stopped maybe to question, oh, hold on a second. Why do I do things in the way that I do them for as long as I've done them? This is why we people please, because that's what we learn to survive. And we get praised for it. Like somebody gets to benefit from it somewhere, but also we maybe get to think that we're kind and loving and giving, or we get to believe that we're safe. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what we're trying to be is safe and we want to belong. It's not a failure, as I said, on our parts that we are people pleasers, but we do have the responsibility to recognize where there are harmful patterns in our life, you know, aka, for instance, the people pleasing. And we need to recognize where that is is very destructive in our lives and start to address that. We're not responsible, for instance, for what our parents or caregivers did. We can't help the childhood that we had. No. But we can help the, the adulthood that we have now. Yeah, we, we absolutely can. I love so much of what you said in there. And I want to extract some more around that people pleasing. You might not think you're a people pleaser, but you probably have ways that you are. So I think a lot of us mm-hmm. think of people pleasing as um, never saying no, always making sure everybody's happy, being that yes person, being a doormat. Those are the more obvious people pleasing things that that a lot mm-hmm. of us can identify with or, or name. And I know I never really thought of myself as a people pleaser because I don't necessarily do that. But one of my trauma responses is fawning and just like doing whatever I need to do to appease the situation that right there is people pleasing. Can you name some other ways that are sort of maybe covert, not so obvious that people Mm -hmm. may be people pleasing and not even realize they're doing it? So in my book, I talk about the five styles of people pleasing. They are gooding, efforting, avoiding, saving and suffering. And I came up with these five styles of people pleasing for exactly the reasons that you described that people often are at extremes of it. They see it as, oh, it means being a doormat and I'm not a doormat. So I can't imagine that I'm a people pleaser or they're up at the other end and they're like, I'm a people pleaser. And it's like, it's a badge of honor. Like, you know, this is a noble way of being. I'm such a people pleaser. I'm such a people pleaser. And what I want, what I saw time and time again is that people are motivated by different things. They are driven by certain things. And so as the name implies of each of these styles, some people pleasers are driven by being and looking good. So given the appearance of things, keeping up appearances, being liked, some are driven by efforts. That's where the camp that I would predominantly fall into. Everything is about effort for me. It wouldn't be enough to like, I don't know, give the impression of something, you know, just kind of put on an appearance. I am like, I'm trying to be the best. I am putting in, trying to put in the most effort, give a hundred percent. 
And so efforters are the most likely to burn out. They are the perfectionists. Avoiding is one that I think a lot of people do not even realize is people pleasing because it is basically trying to avoid being or doing anything that is going to cause uh, discomfort to others. And so that means, for instance, that there might be something that you need to bring up, but you're not going to. You're not going to talk about the elephant in the room and you'll say it's because, you know, you're keeping the peace or whatever it might be. There might be some big, massive thing that you could really do with talking about, but you won't actually suffer with the silence of that than bring that up because of how you think it's going to displease others. When people say to you, what do you want to do? What do you like? I want to do what you want to do. I like what you like. And it can also be just this going along to get along and avoiding anything that we think is going to make waves, cause criticism, cause conflict. Something else that uh, can surprise people about people pleasing is that, uh, you know, we, we're very familiar with the people pleasing of, uh, you know, doing things for others, you know, this sort of helping and rescuing and saving. And what people pleasers don't often acknowledge is that the reason why they do that is because on some level they're trying to help save and rescue themselves. And then there is the suffering where, and this is something that really, you know, the amount of people I've heard from over the last few months that were like, oh my God, I'm a sufferer. And that is that there's almost this attitude of I bleed for you. Mm. And they will put themselves in acute discomfort, acute pain. They will suffer and fall on their sword, not only to quote unquote, please others. So, you know, they'll be the scapegoat. They'll be the black sheep of the family. They'll be, you know, labeled as the troublemaker, you know, the problem person. And that is actually a form of people pleasing. It's not because we are, you know, an actual troublemaker. It's not because we're supposed to be the black sheep. We're doing it to please the person who benefits from us taking on that scapegoat role. And people, when they hear this, they go, oh my gosh, because there will be people listening to this who have been made the scapegoat, for instance, within their family, or where they play it small and they they hide themselves and they let somebody just dump stuff on them. And they don't realize that that is people pleasing. They're doing it to basically acquire this other person's love or as a way of making themselves feel safe with this person. It's all people-pleasing. Oh, that's so good to know. I hope people, well, first, can get the book for themselves and have all this information. And it would be super helpful if you go through those five types once again, not with all all the definitions, but just name them. Yeah, so the first one is gooding. Mm -hmm. Then there's efforting, saving, avoiding, and suffering. Oh, I can see myself in all those in certain ways. Do you have to pick just one? <laughs> yeah. No, you don't. I mean, you know, I say to people that, that it's likely that you're probably going to strongly identify with one. I've been, you know, I've been all of them at different points. I very strongly lean into efforting. And then I think that I, I, I'm i not really in the suffering camp. That's in my distant past. But I dabble uh, in avoiding and uh, the saving and the gooding, but I'm very strong. Like it's very dominant for me that yeah. I would be an efforter. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a huge efforter for me too. Um, yeah, and I even see myself in motherhood slipping a little into the suffering. You know, like aren't you seeing how much I do not to please my daughter, but almost like to get 
recognition from my husband or something else. And I catch it and I go, Ooh, let's not do the martyr suffering thing, Christine. (laughs) Let's not do that. Oh my gosh. Yes, Christine. (laughs) I remember that. And I think it really crops up in those early years, I think, um, in particular, but I think, look, it can crop up at any time, but it is like, it's a thing because I think the messages that we've received about motherhood Mm -hmm. and and womanhood, we have internalized some pretty confusing and distorted messages around this. And so I found that I did the same as you were. It's like, have you not seen how much I've done? Look at me, look at me, look at me. But I also found that I was like the energizer bunny of motherhood, like where I was just trying to be and do all the things. Yeah. And I'm not going to miss any of the events and I'm going to do all the things. and I'm going to volunteer for this. And and then, of course, when, you, when your kid is grumpy or tired or they don't say thank you or whatever, there's a part of you that goes, oh, hold on a second. Like, you don't necessarily yeah. say it out loud, but you feel wounded within. And then it's like, hold on a second. Uh, uh, what are you doing this stuff for? Because if you're doing it for strokes and for brownie points, then stop doing it. Yeah. So it can be, it's so easy to sacrifice yourself in the name of motherhood. You know, <laughs> I, I had this funny conversation with my husband. I think it was last year where I can't remember what it was, but I noticed that he doesn't immediately default to volunteering himself, inconvenience himself, inconveniencing himself, you know, feeling like he has to take on a responsibility of something. Whereas what has been programmed into me, but I'm more mindful of it now, has been to, oh, well, I, I, I'll fall back and somebody else takes over here. Mm. So somebody else is, presents a need and all of a sudden it's like, oh, right, I've now got to think about how to accommodate that. And what has been really interesting is to notice how he and other people don't do that. Mm. And realizing that I don't have to, because when you're working, for instance, for yourself or you're working for somebody else, and then you're also juggling motherhood and, you know, maybe having a partner or a spouse and, and an extended family, you can find that all of a sudden the things that are very important to you and even just basics of self-care fall very low oh, yeah. down the list. Yeah. And you have to be vigilant about this stuff because, you know, this self-neglect is a form of people pleasing because the only reason why you're self-neglecting is because you're too busy doing something for other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that. Thank you for slapping me in the face with that one because I sit here <laughs> unshowered and have a like box of crackers that I have been trying to eat for the last hour. (laughs) Um, and I really, and I was always someone who is so on my self-care, like exquisite with my self-care, had great boundaries. Like I would never have morning meetings or morning phone calls because I just, that was Mm. my meditation time. And if people wanted me to do something in the morning, I was like, nope, sorry. Like maybe if Oprah called, I'd make an exception. But other than that, I said, you know, (laughs) no. And then I had a child and wow, my self-care has just really dwindled. And she's 13 months. And I thought at this point I'd be way better at it, but I can feel that part of me that doesn't want to let her down. You know? And I think that especially in motherhood, it's like, where's the line between devotion and sacrifice? And that's what I keep bringing my mind, myself back to. I'm like, okay, is, am I doing this because I'm devoted or am I doing this? Or is this more of a sacrifice? And it's a hard one to navigate sometimes, especially when they're so little. Yeah, I think when they're really little and, you know, obviously they can't speak for themselves, they don't have you know, the sort of a level of independence yet. I think 
it can be very easy to sort of go down that track of just totally sacrificing mm-hmm. yourself. And look, a, a level of sleep deprivation kind of comes with the territory of, of having kids. And I remember the moment when I think my our eldest daughter was about a week old and I had this sudden realization that I would never be able to walk out the front door without an, without thinking about a million and one things. Yep. That I would never be able to walk out the front door with and only just think of myself. That I would need to have made packed a bag and have the baby with me or have made all sorts of arrangements. And that remains true almost 16, <laughs> almost 16 years later. And I, I think that uh, where it switches from devotion to, you know, this sort of sacrifice is where there is the self-neglect piece that comes with it. And look, we get it. There are going to be days when you're you're covered in sick and your hair hasn't been brushed. And I mean, I'm not covered in sick anymore, but sometimes I forget to brush my hair because I've been doing God knows how many things. And so you're going to have those days. But I think that if you're never getting to you and there are what I call the people pleaser feelings, where there's anxiety, guilt, uh, resentment, frustration, overwhelm, feeling overloaded, feeling depressed, where it feels like you're almost trying to play the role of something. So I think for a lot of us, you know, when we go down the motherhood road, we play at the role of being a good mother. So we're performing at our idea of being a good mother as opposed to being ourselves. And so we're performing at whatever idea, whatever version we've internalized about motherhood. And that's where we can separate from our values and stop meeting our needs because we end up being at conflict with ourselves. Because I don't know, if we've internalized this idea that a good mother always sacrifices themselves, they drop everything for their kid, then you're not going to do something that contradicts that because you're trying to live up to the idea of that. But at what point does dropping everything actually start to become harmful? And over the years, it's a it's a learning, you know, pro- it's, a, mm. it's a work in progress where you know, I've, my eldest daughter, she's doing big school exams at the moment. And over the last few weeks, I've I've had to coach and, and basically teach her for art because they, she wasn't given the teaching and support at school. Mm. And that meant rejigging my schedule. But I had to do it with boundaries where it was like, OK, you know, I've got to have the boundaries here. I also need to take care of myself. There's also a certain amount of work I need to do. But what am I happily and willingly able to give? So the sacri- when we sacrifice, but we do it autonomously, we do it consciously. So we're in that really mindful, present space. Then it's an autonomous give. Whereas when it's sort of on autopilot and it brings up what can be some sort of murky, conflicting feelings, then that's where that sacrifice becomes problematic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I rem- I used to speak a lot on, I still do, but a lot more on generational diversity and millennials. And this was years ago. I started speaking in like 2010 when millennials were a lot younger. And one of the biggest things that was, that I spoke about in terms of psychology of millennials is so many of millennials had parents that wanted to be their friends instead of parents. And so how people pleasing can show up in parenthood and wanting to like please your child mm-hmm. and have them like you versus having strong boundaries and really being their parent. I mean, we could have a whole podcast just on that alone. I, there's so many <laughs> levers and layers to that. But I want to want to make sure I get to some tips for saying no because mm-hmm. 
for all of us that know we should say no to certain things, certain requests, but know the repercussions. Like, oh, it's just easier if I say yes to this. Then I don't have to deal with the backlash or a hard conversation or someone not liking me or someone speaking poorly of me. Because sometimes it's just easier to say yes to things in our mind. But long-term, that can be devastating in terms of the consequences to our emotional, spiritual, and physical health and mental health, obviously. What are some tips for saying no when you know we know that there's going to be some repercussions for it? So I think it's important for us to recognize that yes and no are not separate. So, you know, yes is the inverse of no, no is the inverse of yes. So what I liken it to is the way that the heart and the lungs work together. They they don't, you, you couldn't have one really without the other. They need to operate together in order to pump oxygen rich blood around the body. It's the same with yes and no in that when we are not using no, then we're actually hindering our emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual well-being because yes commits us to certain things. It takes us down a path. And what we use no for, aside from ensuring that it keeps us in integrity with our needs, desires, expectations, feelings, and opinions, is we we can use no as a way to honor the commitments that we actually want to be committed to, to honor the yeses that matter, and to leave us with the, the bandwidth, the, the energy, the effort, the time, the space to be and do the things that matter. Now, I recognize, uh, and believe me, because I have those tricky people in my life, that no is not always easy. But the thing is, is that what we also have to recognize is the, the, the impact of saying yes. So the consequences and meaning of doing so. We can say to ourselves in the moment, Oh, it's just easier to say yes to this person. Keep them off my back. Okay, in the moment, it might feel like that. That's the immediate. What's the short, medium, and long-term impact of that? How does that affect you? Because a lot of people, what happens is they say yes, and then they beat themselves up. And it gradually takes a toll on their emotional, mental, physical, spiritual well-being. It takes a toll on that relationship as well because it fosters resentment. And uh, we always get resentment wherever we've done something from a place of guilt and from this sort of false sense of obligation. Something I also, you know, think is important in about saying no in these situations is, is the sky really going to fall down if we turn around and say no to this person? Like, okay, if the person turns around and they're like, what? You're saying no. Is that such a terrible thing? Mm. Like, is it actually the worst thing on earth for, for for you to be saying no? Because actually, first of all, if somebody reacts badly to you saying no, it's, actually, it's a sign that your no is overdue. It's a sign that they have become too yes or too uh, comfortable to used to you saying yes all the time. And so it's a wake up call that there is something dishonest and unhealthy about the dynamic between you and that person. And one of the things I've come to see is that people like to know where they stand, even though they might not react the best of ways in the moment. People, generally speaking, unless they're very shady, really like to know where they stand. And so what you can consider is, you know, if this if this person doesn't react 
the way that you want them to react, if they don't reward you in the way that on some level you're expecting to be rewarded, would you still want to say yes to this thing? A lot of the time, people wouldn't actually be prepared to say yes. So some people are like, it's easier now to say yes because I just don't want the hassle. But there's a part of them that's going, because I said yes to this thing, I on some level hope that this person will reward me by being nice to me, by being willing to do something for me when I turn around and ask for it, or by basically not criticizing me or starting an issue with me. Of -hmm. course, when that person still criticizes us or they create a conflict or they're unwilling to do something for us when it's our time to turn around and ask, how do we feel? Resentful. We feel hurt and frustrated and feel taken advantage of. And so what we need to be honest about is can, you know, if this person turns around and pisses us off, lets us down, whatever it might be, are we going to still be okay with the yes that we gave them? And that can often lead us to making the uncomfortable but necessary decision to say no. Oh, it's still so hard. (laughs) So in that moment where we're going to do it, it's kind of like just jumping into the pool, right? You just have to do it. Otherwise, like, how do you even change it? So I have a lot of experience with saying no to people that I am literally terrified of, uh, aka a parent. Uh, you know, people who taught you to be scared of their reaction for most or all of your life, Yeah. Um, or people who, even if you've met them in adulthood, they've reacted in certain ways that have really shaken you and maybe reminded you of certain people from earlier parts of your life. So sort of activating, you know, a level of trauma within. And things that have helped me with that is really noticing my body in the moment. So it's it's pausing, even if it's just for like two seconds, to notice where am I? What am I doing? What am I feeling? How am I reacting to this? And for me, in those situations, I can feel almost feel my nervous system vibrating. You know, that sort of the tremor, the the, the panic feeling really unsettled, realizing that I feel like a five or a 10 year old all over again. And in the past, I used to take that feeling or those thoughts of, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? You know, that sort of that that panic. I used to in take those as a sign that I should say yes to whatever it is. And what I realize is it's actually the opposite of that, that if I feel any of those ways, if I think in any of those ways, then I definitely need to say no. And that might mean saying no there and then, or extricating myself out of the situation by going, let me get back to you. And then saying no at a later point when I've had time to kind of calm down my nervous system a bit and sort of calm down my head and realize that the sky isn't going to fall down and what's going on. And then I go back and say, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. And I've also found as well that I've spent a lot of time psyching myself up to say difficult no's (laughs) only for it to be a complete anticlimax. Right, right. Where Where someone's like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of people, I'm sure, relate to this where, you know, and and these are no's with people where I am expecting, based on previous experience, that there's going to be, you know, the doo-doo is going to hit the fan as such, and I'm going to be criticized and told off. And instead, what I found is that when when I get it out, I get straight to the point, and I don't turn it into some big fluffy story 
you know, where it's like, well, my cat, got, you know, got stuck up a tree and this blah, 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 blah. And I've been talking for 10 minutes and finally I turn around and say, no, it's like a straight up front. I go, uh, I can't do that thing. You know, I won't be able to do that thing. I'm not going to be able to make it. And then I, I pause and instead of throwing in more story for it, they turn around and they go, oh, okay. Or, oh, well, that's a shame, but thanks for letting me know. Mm-hmm. Whereas I found that the more I say is the more problems I run into. Yeah, that's so true. No is a complete sentence. It doesn't have to be followed by justification and an apology or either one. Oh, I love it. This has been so, so, so helpful. One thing I'd love to leave our listeners with is a picture of what saying no in your life and what moving away from people pleasing can look like, like how it can actually change your life. So I was somebody who was terrified saying no and would get shaky about it. And when I was ill all of those years ago, I realized that I had to say no as a way of fighting for my health, fighting for my life Mm -hmm. as such. And so that sort of, I guess, motivated me because I, I, I basically had it in my head. I don't want to die. I mean, I know we all do, but you know what I mean? Like I, I was like, I, I have to choose myself here. I have to prioritize myself. And what that meant is that in the the weeks and months that followed, I found myself saying no more and more. And after saying that, you know, I had to go on steroids, I was in remission eight months later. I met my now husband. We've gone on to have two children. My relationships with family and friends improved dramatically because I was in my body and I was doing things from a place of of being myself rather than from this place of self-neglect, of trying to kind of make up for the past in some way, trying to prove myself, trying to avoid rejection. And so many opportunities opened up for me where, you know, baggage reclaim, I started working on that full time. My, as I said, my relationships gradually improved with family. They were still tricky, but I was in a much better place because I tried to imagine how that would be if I didn't have those boundaries, if I hadn't learned to say no. And honestly, I dread to think of what that would have meant for me, because I think it would have pushed me to the brink in terms of my emotional and mental and even physical health as well. And over the years, no is the thing that I keep coming back to. Every time I run into problems, every time I find myself in a space where I'm like, what's going on? Why is this happening? Blah, blah, blah. And then like, what is it that I need to start saying no to? Because when I figure out what I need to say no to, I can say yes to what is a better fit. And in recent months, that has meant, you know, I've said no to certain things with work when it would have been so easy to just go along with that. I've, I've I do things that are counterintuitive. And what that opens up is so much love, care, trust and respect, mm. freedom and flexibility, liking yourself, loving yourself, loving your relationships. Like your relationships are so much more intimate. And on top of that, when you say no to those more toxic relationships, you create space for healthier relationships Mm. and opportunities in your life. Mm. That's so true. I know when I was writing Expectation Hangover, Natalie, my last book, it's about disappointment, leveraging disappointment. Mm. And it came out in 2014. (laughs) I need to write another one. I was like, okay, my next book is going to be about traveling the world, eating chocolate and having great sex because whatever you write about, you have to experience. And I wrote about disappointment. And so I just kept having more disappointment because I was the expert on disappointment. (laughs) 
So <laughs> I'm like, I'm never writing on disappointment again. What was I thinking? I'm just curious and being the author of the joy of saying no, have you been face to face with having to walk your talk, like listen to your own advice in this process? Big time. Now, of course, you know, my experiences with saying no and breaking the cycle of people pleasing were the inspiration for this book. But pretty much as soon as the book was published, I found myself having to make some pretty big decisions. And so counterintuitively, when my book came out, I said no to exhausting myself, trying to be all the things and do all the things to launch it. Because I knew that if I went at this book with this sort of hustling, striving, striving sort of white knuckling, brown knuckling energy, that I was going to hate the book within a week or two. As it was, I was exhausted. On the, by the time the book came out on, Jan, on January 10th in the US, I was so exhausted I couldn't even muster up the enthusiasm to take a picture of myself with the book and say, hey, the book is out today and post it on Instagram. I just couldn't. Instead, I went to sleep at about 7.30 in the evening and I did that for the next few days. And I didn't force myself to pretend that I was in this happier space than I was. Then I made the decision, well, then I made the decision to stop my podcast um, which again would be counterintuitive because some people would be like, oh my God, but you've had a book come out mm. and you've got that <laughs> podcast, so you need to leverage it as a platform. And I was like, mm, no, no, I need wow. to make space for other things. And actually I parked a lot of the things that I have worked on for a long time. I'm like, these things have had a lot put into them. They will be okay. I need to say no to these. I need to say no to kind of updating these for a while and just be in my own space and, and not be constantly creating, creating. I've said no to creating lots more free content because as you and I know, it's not free. Exactly. Um, and there's a lot of effort that goes into that. And I think that we are all inadvertently contributing to a culture where we end up inadvertently devaluing um, sort of what we're creating and what we're sharing. And then I've also said no. I mean, this is how busy these few months have been since the book came out. I I broke up with my mother. Um, mm. I, you know, I think it had been brewing in different ways. And I'd like to say to people, look, I appreciate that that is not an easy decision to make. And it certainly wasn't easy for me, but it was necessary and it was right. And the thing is that you... Your boundaries, like the, the the more you learn to say no and and yes, authentically, is the healthier that your boundaries are. But let me be clear: your boundaries are not miracle workers. So you can evolve and do the self work and have more self compassion and have healthier boundaries. And if somebody is hell bent on busting up your boundaries at every opportunity they get, no matter what place you put them at in your life, no matter how much of a distance you keep them at, then in my case, it was time for me to say no and draw that line. And you know what? My younger self was so happy mm -hmm. with me for making that decision. Mm -hmm. And I actually apologized to little Nat for it taking until this time for me to do it because little Nat, I'm sure must've been going, how come she's still around? Like, how come mm. you still have her in your life? Mm. When this person, when I was a kid, it made me feel so terrified. And even though that wasn't the life that I have of it, this person was still busting, trying to bust my boundaries in, mm -hmm. in other ways. And I said, no, 
And the lightness and the relief that I feel as a result, incomparable. Mm. Oh, breaking up with a parent, I often it's harder than breaking up with a, a lover. It is such a, a tough one on so many levels. And it can create so much freedom and such a, a reclamation yeah. of, of our inner child. Because the inner child is like, finally, someone's taking care of me. Finally, someone's getting yes. me out of this situation. Finally, I have a voice. Yeah, you know, like like I was saying before, I couldn't. You couldn't say to your mom when you were ten, uh, "Mom, you got some issues, and I'm out." But you can say it now. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't have been alive to tell the tale. I actually yeah. think I tried to say something to my mom around about that same age about this, and she was not happy. Let's just put it that way. Uh, and if I had gone any further with that, I wouldn't be alive to tell the tale about that. We were not in a position to do those things, but we are in a position now. And when we have healthier boundaries now, we send messages back to our younger self, back to our body, but also to our future self and to, you know, all who come after us, you know, in our line about, you know, really that taking care about that love, care, trust and respect. It's healing both going back and also going forward as well. I'm breaking generational cycles yeah. and, I, and, and I'm happy to say no to being in that cycle. Yeah. And I, 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 I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, that's easy to do. But actually, it's funny. It hasn't been this terrible thing to go through because I think that everything in its time. So even though it, it could have been done before, it happened right on time. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I love that you said that because I think a lot of us can beat ourselves up for not doing things sooner, not having a voice sooner when we're ready, when all parts of us are ready. That's, that's, we've got to trust that divine timing and that due timing. Well, this has been so enlightening and helpful and relatable. Um, Is there anything I left out? I mean, I know there's so much in the book and there'll be links to the book in the show notes and people can go and check it out. The joy of saying no on Amazon and all your, your favorite places. But is there anything I didn't ask, any big topics I left out that you'd like to make sure my audience leaves with today? You know, we covered a lot. And I think the one thing I think I would stress is that people pleasing is like a debt, like where you create a debt and then you expect somebody else to pay it off. Mm. And lots of us do things for others. We stay late at work, you know, we'll we'll put ourselves out. We will make sacrifices. And plenty of us do that because we are aware of what we're doing and what it is we have to give and what the impact and, and, and meaning of doing so is. And we would also be willing to shift gears if we realize that it wasn't working for us. Where this stuff becomes people pleasing is when we're doing it because on some level, we don't feel as if we are worthy because we are doing or we're doing it because of what we think we're going to get back or we're doing it because we're afraid that if we if we don't say yes, that something bad is going to happen. And if you don't say yes authentically, you say it resentfully, fearfully or avoidantly. And that leads to more problems than if you just said no in the first place. And when people realize that people pleasing is even though it's not what we set out to do, it, it can be very manipulative mm-hmm. because it's like we're trying to Jedi mind trick people into feeling a certain way and thinking a certain way and changing themselves. And a lot of people don't want to do that. And if that's you listening and thinking, actually, I don't want to be trying to like manipulate people, even if it's, you know, sort of from a distance, you will 
find it within yourself to start saying, you know, no, when you need one to ensure. And it's don't try to do everything all at once. You don't have to say no to everything right now. Start somewhere, start anywhere. Exactly. And one thing that I say on the show a lot about people pleasing is to to help bust people out of it is people pleasing is actually selfish. No one wants to be selfish, but in so many ways it is because you're the one that wants to look good. You're the one you're trying to protect. You're the one that doesn't want a difficult conversation. And so we think it's like this self-sacrificing thing, but often it's, it's self-protective is a more accurate way to say it, but it really gets our attention. We're like, oh gosh, people pleasing actually is selfish. It's not this thing that deserves a medal. Yes. I, the big one is people say, you know, I'm doing it because I don't want to hurt their feelings. No, you don't want to hurt your feelings. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, well, you are brilliant. Thank you for moving through your own people pleasing to get to this side. And I always deeply acknowledge people who have had a very difficult, traumatic childhood who come out the other side and break the generational pattern. That is not easy to do. And it takes, it takes a lot of heart. It takes a lot of courage, takes a lot of consciousness and you did it. And I had to have so much respect for that. And I honor that. So thank you for being a generational pattern breaker. Thank you so much, Christine. This has been a beautiful conversation and I so appreciate you having me as well. So we'll send people to the joy of saying no book. Is there any place else people can connect with you, Natalie? Uh, social media wise, I'm on Instagram. I'm at Natlu, N-A-T-L-U-E. I have my website, baggagereclaim.com. And I'm also on Substack at natalielu.substack.com as well, where I do a an occasional newsletter about on knowing yourself. Mm, I love that. I love that. I just learned a new thing. Substack. Didn't even know what that was. (laughs) So thank you for (laughs) opening my eyes. I'm so out of the loop. All right, Natalie, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Christine. Take care. 